Hello and welcome to citiesabc.com series of interviews and profiles with global top thought leaders, experts and people shaping and creating new narratives for our world, society and business industry. My name is Dinesh Guarda and I'm here to talk about the biggest problems humanity is facing, questioning and challenging how we can think bigger and out of the box. And as well, profiling the people that are making the world a better place and as well creating new solutions both in technology policy making and a lot of different areas citiesabc.com is a new wiki for ar intelligent smart cities tech digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities universities and all of us as citizens and uh, my work has been in these areas for a long time and today i have with us anish mohamed that is a person I know for a long time and I deeply respect for a very sharp mind and as well a sense of innovation, technology, but as well questioning the status quo, especially of the relationships of technology, ethics, and a lot of different areas. So Anish Mohamed is the co-founder of EthicsNet um, that is reflecting about the ethics of AI, is as well the co-founder of Polygon Protocol, is an advisor board member for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and is one of the leading blockchain researchers and technologists that has been working both on the policies, but as well on the technology and the code that is what is going to shift our new developments as humans and societies. Welcome to our interviews, Anish. Great to have you here. Uh, thank, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to invite me. My pleasure. So, um, Anish, well, there's a lot of questions and I will try to uh, align the interview based in all your multi-skills, especially as an academic, as a researcher, but as well as a technologist. So, I didn't mention actually the part as, as an academic, but we've been working on that for a long time, but are we going to touch that? So, I would like to start by your, uh, and I always do this, but I want to, in your case, it's particularly interesting being a citizen of the world. So, can you tell us about your background? Um, in terms of education from childhood until your studies. I, would like to, I always like to start from the childhood. So where we okay. started and where you come in terms of education. Yeah. So I, I was born in a place in India called Kerala. It's a state in Kerala. And uh, the, the district I was born in is called Alipura. And uh, people who have a tourist a kind of uh, thinking uh, would recognize the place in Kerala that is well known for backwaters. So it's a very beautiful place. So I was born there. I went to uh, my school there. And then I went to a med school in Kerala. And then when I finished, I left, uh, uh, you know, Kerala. And then for a brief time, I was in an institute uh, in Bangalore called Indian in the Institute of Sciences. So I was doing some research on, on uh, some uh, hidden Markov models to how to model intrusion detection. And then it so happens that I got hooked into this idea of micropayment systems. And Ericsson actually had a project to build micropayment systems. So, uh, you know, I joined Ericsson. Ericsson wanted me in Stockholm. So I moved from UK to Stockholm. And the next uh, set of iteration was uh, recognize that, uh, you know, having micropayment systems that actually are kind of bound to phones have some challenges, which we've already very, very familiar with. 
we've all recognized what happens when you know we have wallets wallets with private private keys so we had a similar situation we had a browser and the browser had a private key so for any reason if somebody doesn't have the ability to access the private key we have a big challenge right so this was an ongoing problem and i kind of recognized it and i said uh, i brought it up with the rest of the team and so it was a difference in opinion so i decided you know uh when it hits the fan i don't want to be around so uh, somebody turned up uh, asked me if i'd be interested in working on bioinformatics so we had a startup that was uh, you know, that uh, that was in the plan to acquire v linux which was uh, one of the biggest uh, you know uh, linux people manufacturers at that point in time and uh, they wanted somebody to look after their bioinformatics part of it so i joined uh, i brought got together a team to work on various bioinformatics problems and then worked on it for a while and looking at uh, computational drug discovery and a few other things I mean, uh, our contribution is at some point in time in 2004, uh, the team that I was part of actually delivered the number four in top, top 100. But I wasn't there when that happened. I had to leave. Like, you know, design t- it happens up front, delivery happens later. So part of the people that were involved in design front. And then I decided I should get some uh, proper, how could I say, proper qualification in the topics that I was interested in, which is cryptography. So I went to Royal Holloway and, uh, you know, I did a master's and then signed up for a PhD program. And then in the meanwhile, I, you know, worked on various things. And uh, then after my Royal Holloway, I did a, a brief stint at, uh, Cap, uh, you know, Capgemini and then Accenture. And then I had a two brief stints at Lloyd's and HSBC and in like 2017, I kind of decided I had enough of the corporate world and the world that actually moved on and my skills in the blockchain world was of high enough demand and I could actually contribute to the global economy on my own and didn't require much of a framework. So I decided I should do some consulting on my own. And in the meanwhile, I actually went to uh, a Singularity University in 2013 and then to Stanford uh, program in 2015. So that's pretty much my summary educational no, no, it's a massive uh, uh, background on the scientific and as well with the organizations we've been working. So uh, I would like to touch the Singularity University and Stanford, so because you, you, you've been involved with that. So can you just highlight what you've been doing with Singularity University for your audience, for our audience and as well? It touched a lot of your work in collaborative technology and things like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it just happens that Ray Kujwal and Peter Diamandis are the two people who have a, a lot of influence on how technology has been evolving. Ray was the director of AI at Google, and he is one of the few authors, uh, you know, who actually brought out the challenges that AI would create for humanity. And uh, he's an optimist, uh, so he actually has a bet between, uh, uh, there's a bet in 2030 between Ray Kuchwal and Mitch Kapper, which says singularity would happen at 2030. So Ray is uh, for and uh, Mitch is against. So, you know, uh, that gave, uh, you know, people like me and Nell an opportunity to work on ethics of AI. Peter, again, he's the one behind, uh, you know, uh, oh, a whole bunch of things. Uh, so all this uh, challenges that he had actually uh, started, which actually gave everybody the opportunity and the ability to actually create a real uh, competition while you have very little of your own resources to deploy, right? 
So this was one of the key innovations from Peter that one could copy. So in Singularity University, I got the chance to actually, uh, you know, collaborate with a whole bunch of very interesting classmates of mine. So you know, the, the classmates of mine include uh, some of the one of the well-known science fiction authors, uh, Hanu, uh, my uh, you know collaborator and co-founder of Ethicsnet. Uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of other people that are there that allowed me to actually collaborate various places in various projects. Uh, and on the other side, it also allowed me, uh, gave me exposure to a whole bunch of ecosystem in the Bay Area. So, you know, it gave me a chance to meet, uh, uh, how could I say, uh, the, the awesome people. So uh, I, I've met uh, Steve Jabertson, Mark Anderson. So it, it was a very, uh, you know, it, it, you know, collaboration opening opportunity effectively allowed me to go meet people, ask questions. I met Peter Shore, uh, you know, uh, one of the, well, you know, big well-known figures in AI, you could actually go ask them in person, like the questions you had. Uh, I met uh, Jeremy Howard, who was one of the uh, co-founders of uh, Kaggle. So my interest in data science was kind of, uh, how could I, stroked up by him and helped by him in a loose sense of speaking. So, you know, it, it gave me this opportunity of actually being able to, you know, work with others. So for other example, I would say Vivek, Vivek Watwa, he was faculty in SU and, uh, you know, I started working with him and uh, through him with his son. And he has been my co-author for a whole bunch of articles that I published in various places, including Forbes, CNN and other places. So, yeah, it, it has opened up a whole bunch of opportunities and I've been working with lots of people. Yeah, some of the top people in the in the world and as well have been shaping the, the present that we have now. So. One of the questions now going from your background to the, to the present and still before you go to the present. So you've been as well in the inception of a lot of things in terms of blockchain protocols and a lot of things in yep. terms of AI. Could you just yep. tell us a bit about your background in that area and as well the research you've been doing? Because it's a lot of things you've been doing in that area. Yeah, so uh, in this blockchain space, literally, uh, I've been on the cryptography mailing list for a, uh, probably around like 2000. So I have a friend of mine, uh, he actually runs a mailing list called Silk and uh, Perry is, uh, the person who actually runs the cryptography mailing list is on that list. And so he just uh, you know, suggested to me that I should get on it. And I was on the list. So when the Bitcoin white paper came along, I saw it. And given I had actually worked in micropayment systems and I've actually understood the challenge of so-called you know, binding key, private keys to devices, I was uh, kind of skeptical. So, you know, being a skeptic always helps to actually <laughs> not make money. So uh, in that instance, uh, so I read the paper, but uh, there was a, a, a bit of attraction. So in 2011, 2012, a bunch of us actually got together. We actually had like a, in a hackerspace in London, uh, which is one of the things I've been involved in for a very long while, uh, we actually ran a workshop and some of the well-known figures were there and uh, me, I was contributing my expertise in cryptography to explain to people how to do the various things. And then when I went to SU, what happened is like, uh, I had an interaction with uh, one of the investors of the Ripple and they were, look, you know, they were looking for their hire for the CTO. And by the time I got there, uh, they all already hired Stefan. So 
uh, you know, Stefan was very interested in having me as one of the early advisors, and I ended up being an early advisor to Ripple and I worked with him ever since till he left uh, Ripple. And then, even though I was working for Ripple, I never had this attitude of like a single religion. It's like I'm more for, uh, you know, uh, really valuing uh, the ability of a human to make their own choices. So I knew Victor, Victor Tron. Uh, so when Ethereum came about, uh, he asked me if I'd be willing to help him. So when Orange Paper, which is the Ethereum Orange Paper, came out, uh, I was one of the reviewers. So I ended up being a reviewer of Ethereum Orange Paper, and I've uh, ever since worked uh, not too much, but I've met with the uh, you know the Ethereum Swarm team. So that was that bit. And then by 2016, 2017, uh, the tokenization came to the fray and I got swept in. And that's along the same time than when I met you. So I had already been a co-founder for 2030. And uh, then I stepped back and I decided I should be, you know, getting onto a project and being involved full time when politics becomes a mainstay of a project becomes very difficult for me. I would not qualify myself as being a politician being able to navigate the murky waters of politics. So I, I, would, I am pretty happy to actually deal with medicine, mathematics, AI, blockchain, cryptography, uh, you name it, I can handle most of it, uh, you know, but uh, you know, the politics is very, very hard. So I started stepping back and then I ended up actually, uh, you know, working on, uh, in total right now, it, uh, protocol wise, it will be the seventh layer one protocol that I've been involved in some shape or form, either in design or design verification or help in that sense. And uh, in that protocol sense, I've actually de designed at least uh, a dozen protocols in that sense. So when I say design, it's in like uh, I do the, uh, I do help the teams that actually want to design and with their design. And uh, the design obviously belongs to them, but me as being the free agent who actually helps people with their designs. I've been involved in doing that. And then uh, in the meanwhile, I was interested in having one of my, my own startups in the zero knowledge space, uh, which I had for a while. And uh, because of the various challenges that happened and probably being ahead of the game, uh, I had to uh, you know, uh, give up and uh, then just focus on doing research. So I mostly do uh, a reasonable amount of research on uh, crypto economics, token engineering, and applications as other North roofs and other things on blockchain. So that's where I kind of focus. So um, on the blockchain side, I think it's particularly important. Um, so there's been a lot of stuff happening on blockchain technology and uh, yeah. especially in the last few years, it became mainstream. Um, yeah. So as one of the people that have been building kind of the plumbing and as well the, the foundations of blockchain technology, how do you see yep. what is the stage we have now? And probably not talking so much on the crypto, but more on the blockchain technology and the crypto. I'll leave that probably for... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, in a blockchain sense, so if you think about it uh, in this innovation curve that you normally have, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's this... Uh, creation and then there's this uh, peak of hype and there's this trough of disillusionment and then this going up kind of phase. I think if you think in that sense, in in a technology adoption sense, it's actually going up. Uh, even though there is a recession that's, uh, you know, it's been hitting us, I suspect uh, the outcome of a whole bunch of projects would be 
a key set of challenges in the blockchain space could be solved to a large degree. So when I say this, I mean to say, if you look at Ethereum 2.0, they are going to solve some of the problems in scaling, some of the problems in uh, consensus. And uh, similarly, there are a whole bunch of protocols that are at the cusp of being released in one way or the other. So Polkadot is there, there's going to be a Definity uh, instance, the, the Algorand, I expect them to actually have some significant, uh, you know, releases soon. Uh, Starkware guys have been quite active. Uh, Zcash guys have been active. So there's been a lot of progress. So if you look at uh, you know, uh, just to give you an example, in the zero knowledge space in the last one year, the total amount of, uh, you know, papers that came out, you could pretty much think like every every month you had a new interesting paper. There's so much of progress that has actually happened. So the, the side effect of all of this progress is the fact that a lot of the things that were considered pretty, pretty hard uh, has become a lot more easy and more accessible to people uh, that are not sophisticated. But at the same time, I should warn, it's also a risk. So the risk I would say is like, uh, if you look at the D4 situation where we had a protocol and the protocol was actually compromised, you actually have a real challenge where people are not recognizing protocols, how they have been built. And when you build things up, uh, you know, it's like a house being built, right? If you have a multi-story house or a building, you drive piles down and the, the, the solidity of the piles actually allowed the foundation to be held in place. And even though the person who builds the, you know, the frame upstairs, uh, up above the ground doesn't really know what's the you know, pillars that's been driven down or never have even seen it, it is very possible they never saw it, it's the strength that actually they trust, right? And they should know the characteristics of it. And somehow this is being completely missed in the case of blockchain. So uh, somehow people don't seem to think that there are pillars that's been driven down and the characteristics of those pillars should be well understood if you were to, and the foundation should be well understood when you build a house on top of it. So if you are building a DeFi protocol, you know, you need to understand that you are sending data and instructions at the same uh, construct across from one machine to the other. And, you know, you don't actually have a memory space uh, isolations in that sense. And this is like an interesting challenge. And none of the security challenges are really well understood. And uh, there is also some amount of uh, illusion that have crept in, uh, which says, uh, you know, uh, simulations are as good as everything else. And uh, given COVID, uh, I am pretty sure that everybody, anybody who has any ability to read something and make sense can understand that simulations in no way is a real representation of what's going to happen. Simulations could be helpful. So if we were to take the case of UK, we have the situation where the UK government actually wanted some outcome. Uh, so they actually talked to a bunch of modelers to model herd immunity, right? And this is like very optimistic. Uh, you can use whatever phrase you want. It's very optimistic. You, you, uh, you know, decide what your initialization parameters and you run it in a particular way that it gives you the result you want. So simulations have a massive challenge. You know, simulations don't uh, always have to, you know, align with reality. And this is like, uh, you know, a thing that everybody in the world should have uh, opened their eyes by now because like COVID completely shattered, uh, you know, everybody who has been doing simulations. So like you can actually go into even Harvard. Harvard had uh, a whole bunch of papers that came out. Uh, 
uh, in a CDC, they have a whole bunch of people who have done simulations. You can actually see the variations that are there. So, you know, a simulation essentially means like you have a whole variation of things. And when you want to really be sure something is going to stand the test of something, you need to have far more rigor than just simulation. So there you are. That's my two minute worth of ramble. <laughs> no, that's no, a very important rumble. So, and uh, and one of the things I want to just go from the 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 foundations to the, the practical practicalities. You've been involved in a couple of projects on the blockchain area. Um, yeah. And uh, and as well, some of them you've been building infrastructure protocols. So, how would you look at the stage where we are right now? Do you think the technology? Because we have two very strong and different. Um, uh, kind of verticals going around in the blockchain industry. So one is the centralized model that uh, yep. that is becoming mainstream. And that happened with yep. the beginning of the internet. If you look at the inception of the yep. internet, we had open source yep. and suddenly it became closed source by a couple yep. of big groups. Do you see yep. that the blockchain technology might go in the same direction or we might uh, still make a balance between the two levels? Yeah, so I, I, I want to give a better narrative to the whole situation that has actually developed uh, so people understand this fully. So uh, when everybody thinks that all the closed source entities actually uh, are closed source, that's not actually true. Let's take the case of cloud, right? The whole base of the cloud is pretty much open source. So Linux, okay, most of the instances around Linux, uh, it's open source. Uh, look at Hadoop, uh, whole ecosystem. Pretty much all of it is uh, in open source. Look at Spark ecosystem. Pretty much all of it is open source. And the people who actually make money, this is what I call the open source protocol arbitrage, right? So the way I would describe this is as like, you know, there is this thesis of the, there's this fat protocol thesis that exists uh, that's Union Square Ventures said about uh, blockchain. I would say there's a fat open source, uh, you know, or, or I would say the reverse, the lean open source uh, thesis, right? So what effectively open source allows you to do is that the protocol layer actually takes very little value and all the value crude is actually in the application layer. And in the application layer, the people, they do customizations and make domains and fiefdoms and curtail it, okay? So if you look at Google, if you look at Facebook, if you look at Twitter, the underlying technology pretty much all of it is open source, right? And it is a traditional thing that has been happening in a lot of industries. So what it means is like, we have a tragedy of commons of a very different kind. So the real funding and real effort that goes into the fundamentals of uh, most of the technology, whether it be pharmacology, whether it's science or electronics, whether it's open source software or software in that sense, it's mostly open source, right? So you were starting off by saying, what happened with internet? Internet actually, actually DAO passed money to actually connect all the things up, they open sourced it, right? So there's technology that actually happens. So uh, there is open source technology, but you actually you know, uh, put, uh, how could I say, boundaries around it to actually separate, to segregate your ecosystem from actually interacting with others. In the blockchain space, what I'm, what I'm seeing and what I'm hoping will happen is that this it's, uh, you know, there's two different models. One is called the cathedral model, which is like more centralized and the open source model, which is called the bazaar model. So right now, most of the value is really accrued in cathedrals. The cathedrals are places where they have lots of people and lots of value. So you can think of banks as being cathedrals, but 
And the thing we need to recognize is these cathedrals need to talk to each other. And uh, cathedrals don't actually have like tunnels between them. They actually have to go through the bazaars, right? So the, po the possibility is that when this value, you know, value transfers across the bazaars, right? The routes through the bazaars, it is very likely that some of the value get uh, distributed and the value in the bazaar might increase. And if the value in the bazaars increase, and the, the, the bazaar ecosystem is large enough to actually have their own vibrant uh, you know, you know, ec economy, then it is very possible that uh, the, the, the so-called uh, foods might disappear. So look at history. History shows this. Like at one point in time, one of the most successful models were foods, right? Now we don't see that many foods. Why? Because this collaboration is the key for successful economy. And this is effectively going to happen in, uh, you know, in a financial space as well, or a financial domain as well. So what we actually have is, you know, uh, right now we have a whole bunch of uh, castles that have a very large amount of value who talk to each other. They have to go through the bazaar. This is the thing that everybody seems to miss. And, you know, this is, has been the state in history. We always had you know, so-called, uh, you know, st states like this, which have a strong boundary, that are boundary conditions. They, you know, they actually got all the things and accrued the wealth and they controlled it. And then what had happened is innovations happened and innovation allowed, uh, you know, same level of security for people that who are outside, living outside the castle walls, right? And it, it, this, the cycles of innovation that happens in history is going to happen again. So the people who are living in the, behind the castle walls who think they have false security are going to soon recognize, but, you know, when guns and gunpowder came around and cannons came around, uh, castles and castle walls became a big disadvantage, right? And walls couldn't really hold off uh, the enemies, right? And this was made worse by aircrafts. They could just fly over, right? So literally that became a big, big disadvantage. So this is going to actually happen when uh, you know, protocols develop, blockchain protocols go beyond the point where they're able to actually provide very efficient mechanisms of both governance and transference of value, uh, the castles, and, and also provide you know, a level of security that's appropriate to what castle provides. So nobody will be willing to live inside a castle you know, with a lot of restrictions. So think of this as social isolation, right? So we are all inside, uh, as the British saying goes, a man's castle in that sense. It's like we are inside our castles. Most of us are inside our castles. We really, I don't think anybody really likes it, right? We would really like to be outside. So this is the same thing that's going to happen with value as well. So my expectation is this, you know, this, this innovation would actually allow the value to get outside the walls of the castle and that will result in more vibrant economy and more and more, what you're seeing and what we were discussing previously before we, uh, start, we started this conversation is the requirement of globally unified thinking and globally unified governance. And there, are, there is no better technology that's currently available that's able to deliver this to humanity than blockchain. So given all these things, whether it's finance or this is like uh, the value system or this lessons in history where you know, if, uh, castles have failed, and all those things indicate to us. It's like, if you look at history, there it, everything happens in cycles. So, you know, people build castles and it, it gets destroyed and next set of innovations happen. They again and go build castles, right? This is the castle. The banks are the castles of the world right now. So this is my view. My view is like, as things progress, 
uh, when the roots are getting broader, because right now one of the challenges we had with the blockchain protocols, which you rightly pointed out, is the throughput. So you didn't have enough of a wide route, so you could actually connect the castles and the, you know, it wasn't efficient, right? So now once this roots networks become really, really efficient and cheap and safe, right? This is the condition that need to be there. When this becomes cheap, efficient and safe, then everybody would recognize, look, you know, uh, there's no much of a value in being inside a castle. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> I like the metaphor and the way you put it. So I think on that level, I, I'm picking on that infrastructure of technology that, uh, that you're talking. So from blockchain, if you look at foundation technologies, we look at uh, blockchain, we look at AI, and you look at IoT and a lot of different things on smart cities, infrastructure, and so forth. Yeah. So in particular, yeah. um, how do you see the evolution of blockchain? Because let's say if we put it in a simple way, blockchain is like, um, how can I put it in a simple way? Is blockchain is like a, a, a plumbing system for the data that can actually create uh, identity and like uh, um, uh, as well, all the interoperability, but as well the security. Uh, you are an expert in yeah. encryption. How, how do yeah. you see that so, relationship? Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, no, I have to admit, I, I wrote a piece like a, a good few years ago on smart cities. Uh, I think it got covered in one of those, I don't know what, what venture beat, I really. So it got picked up and kind of described. So I, I've been very, very interested in this paradigm that you are referring to. I mean, mostly, I, I, I wouldn't say blockchain is a place which is ideal for storing data, meaning in a sense like, Storing on a blockchain is very inefficient. So if you were to take the case of Ethereum, if you were to, uh, you know, store like a one gigabyte of data, I think like two or three F is what you require to actually store it, right? Which is pretty expensive in that sense. So, but, you know, if you want to anchor it in a sense, like you provide provenance of that onto a blockchain, that's like super useful. And I think the bigger value here is not just having this ability to store, or provide provenance. It's even better is the fact that you can actually attach a policy to data set. So essentially when I allow somebody to use my data, I can actually give my data along with the smart contract that says, you know, this data is kind of bound to this uh, smart contract. And the smart contracts make sure that some policies are being enforced. So this is what the real uh, game changer in the situation is. There are more and more, you know, uh, sophisticated techniques and tools as that's being available to us from the world of uh, homomorphic encryption, the world of zero knowledge protocols, the world of uh, multi-party compute. So multi-party compute and zero knowledge proofs kind of merge at one point. But irrespective of that, the broader class of these technologies are allowing us to do a lot more than what we could actually do. And Blockchain, as I said, the key thing for blockchain is this ability to provide governance frameworks, right? And then we could actually hand this over. So for example, you know, most cities actually have the challenge of traffic, okay? Uh, as in like traffic queues. So imagine a world that every vehicle actually had the ability to bid for the chance of going through. <clears throat> so what could then happen? What then happen is like the price discovery for crossing a traffic light happens, right? So you know who values the most for crossing the traffic light the fastest. Then you can actually price this and the people who want to go the first, they will actually, there might be some exceptions where an ambulance needs to go through and we will bypass that or a police car needs to go through, then we will bypass that. But for the rest of it, 
we can actually have a marketplace where, you know, and the marketplace is actually being built by the car, your autonomous vehicle you are in, and the autonomous vehicle actually does the bidding on behalf of you, right? So this could be the kind of the future you can have where governance is actually being, uh, you know, handed over to a whole bunch of data that's in various places, market, market making mechanisms that can actually use blockchain and smart contracts to actually make sure that the rules are being upheld and then we can actually have, a, 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 you know, we can apply different uh, governance mechanisms. We can apply contract voting. And uh, as a result of all of that, you can have uh, very ethical frameworks, fair, fair frameworks being applied with very little overhead. And that's what is normally required. Like what literally we, we were discussing previously is the challenge that democracies normally have elections one in four years. And it doesn't represent everything in the next four years, right? they get elected for a, a particular, you know, particular line of reasoning. And at that point in time, uh, we evaluate them and then we get on the vote. But, uh, you know, they change. You know, Boris Johnson might have, you know, right now if an election happens, it is unlikely Boris Johnson would win again, given what he has actually done for, uh, with COVID, right? So, you know, but we have no ability in a democracy to remove Boris Johnson. Literally, what we should have had is this ability to make a decision on every every decision or every viable decision or every you know you know what I mean. It's like it's it's the decisions that we could actually look at and you know provide an input to. This could be automated, so we could all have our preferences put into something. And there are other mechanisms. You could have a almost sort of a delegated proof of stake mechanism, right? So there are a lot of tools and consensus in the blockchain world that you know consensus being part of the blockchain world, uh, being applied into uh, cities and into democracies. And we can have a much better, much more flexible, much more efficient, and uh, you know, much more frictionless mechanism. So we, we could actually achieve the, you know, literally the utopia that we all wanted to have in terms of democracy. Yeah, that's... Uh... So I, I want to be provocative on that level. So we have a big oh, sure. problem right now. I know that you like a good uh, provocation on that level. So um, in a constructive way, so one of the challenges that we're facing right now is that all this innovation is definitely uh, crushing with the geopolitics and the lack of education. And we're starting yeah. to have a very fragmented uh, society where we have um, politicians not having a clue about technology. Most of yep. society using technology for fake news and even to create some kind of theories of conspiracy in some cases, very paranoid. Yep. Um, yep. So that means all this technology might just take us to a big, uh, a big chaos. And as well, you are a teacher and uh, as well a person very focused on policy making, ethics. How do you see this challenge that we have on these areas? Because this is for me a critical element here. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree, uh, you know, I would probably go one step further to say this. So, you know, uh, the, uh, I actually had a paper published by a friend of mine and Jean-Luc Nancy on the philosophy of this, and they referred to one of the papers I wrote earlier. The, the challenges uh, that we have is, uh, this is how I would describe it. Uh, you know, technology evolves really fast and governance framework does a catch up. And now what happens next is like mostly, uh, you know, the governance frameworks in the society looks at the first order implications of uh, evolution of technology, right? 
So what has literally happened right now in many ways, the set of people that are in power and you could probably say are critical to the catastrophic failure of containment of COVID are beneficiaries of uh, a company called Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, uh, there is enough of data that's available. I happen to know a couple of the people. Uh, they, I've worked with them in other projects. So I've, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, let's not uh, name names, but uh, you know, pe people have actually worked with me on projects uh, other than the Cambridge Analytica, but who used to work with Cambridge Analytica, and uh, you know, because of them, I have a pretty good idea of how they operated. So the operation of Cambridge Analytica actually resulted in uh, in, a, in, a, in an advantage to different sets of actors, right? So if you were to look at uh, you know. What has actually happened in 2016, that, that there was a significant shift in the global policy settings. One was a change that actually allowed by a narrow margin Brexit, and similarly by a narrow margin election of Trump. So a catastrophic failure in meeting COVID right now, what has shown is two sets of factors that actually got benefic beneficial effects by use of technology, by really focusing their messages on a small segment of the population. And that's by doing so, in spite of the fact they actually breached the privacy laws, uh, privacy laws of the country, they were still allowed to progress. So this is the, one of the things I really, really don't understand. Uh, you know, one of the uh, real failures of the democracies of the world is the fact that when somebody reaches a law, which was in this instance, the privacy laws, right? Uh, you know, if you actually do this for something else, uh, you'll be put to prison, right? So if you do just defraud, right, uh, they'll be completely, you know, uh, you know, taken out of the office and be thrown out, right? But uh, the, the thing that's actually being missed is the fact that uh, even though people said this before, the data is a new oil, and if you were to translate that in a real sense, you know, uh, wars have been fought over oil. And we have no doubt about those facts. The whole of uh, you know second half of uh, you know uh, this century, uh, last century has been uh, uh, you know wars that have been fought over oil, right? So if if you translate that to wars being fought over oil, and you have oil being replaced by data, and then you can actually see where those wars should be going next. And now a privacy is like your real ownership on the data. That's that. That's what that translates to. Why have there been wars on oil? Is the you know? It's literally oil is under the earth, and if you have two countries and one country can actually drill in their place and uh, in to get into the shells and then pump it out, another uh, country gets to the same shelf, and they have a challenge. They, they you know they have to agree, and now this is a challenge, and they, they sometimes the agreement doesn't work and they end up fighting. So Iran and Iraq, right? And I, you know, invasion of various places by the U.S. You know, all of that is like interesting. So now take that and shift the paradigm and look at it with the data glasses on. And what you're seeing is that's being completely misunderstood. You know, the data, the oil that's of the, you know, that's actually owned by the citizens of the state is being plundered by a bunch of actors who could have bases in around the world, and they're taking over because they have the ability to break the rules. And this breaking of rules is not considered the same way and nobody fights for it. And this to me is an anomaly. 
And you know, this resulted in a certain set of actors coming to power, especially who have very right wing views. And this resulted in a complete catastrophe where human lives are being lost. So, you know, I, I don't know how to phrase it any better than this. No, 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 I think you made very good points. But, but I think the challenge is, is um, and I think as a technologist, I want to ask you, as well as a professor, so how can we rebalance that? Because, of course, there's education, but there's as well a, a paradigm shift because we have the most advanced technology in the history of mankind. We are touching right now in the artificial intelligence that you start touching in singularity, which is something I want to touch. But at that same time, we have a huge part of the world population not understand. Although we have a paradox of uh, living, if you look purely from the 7 billion people living in the world, we live better than ever in history. But at the same mm -hmm. time, we have this schizophrenic kind of cyberpunk vision of the world, very dystopic, that is increasing. So do you think we can actually realign the utopia in a good way for technology and the trust in tech and all these areas that we need to have? Because at the moment, people don't trust tech. They use it. It became like, we are almost like, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, cyber parts of the, our body because the way we use phones is becoming kind of like a, a prosthesis of our bodies. But at the same time, we have all these challenges. So how do you see this part? Because I want to touch this. Because there's not a lot of people reflecting this and especially coming up with solutions on this. So uh, are you asking me, are we seeing a shift in paradigm uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how technology is being uh, governed? Or are you asking me, do I think that is necessary? There's two different things. I think probably both. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I'm more interested right now. There's a problem. Okay. And the, oh, the problem everybody is, agrees. Is, yeah. Uh, I think that part, the answer to that is an, uh, a very big yes. If you were to ask anybody, you will get a yes for that answer. Now, what they differ and how they differ is uh, how. Okay. How are we going to get to where we want to, right? The world has a big problem, the, the, which you rightly pointed out. So the world has probably between you know, seven and eight billion people, and there's probably one billion of them kind of live in the so-called developed world, right? The so-called first world. And the second world and the rest of it actually has the majority. And if you look at the resource allocation, you know, resource allocation is very skewed. A very small minority of the world controls the largest amount of resources. Now, the question arises, you know, can we actually have a democracy where this is this massive skew in resource allocation? So the resource allocation skewing has actually increased significantly over the last 25 years, right? And probably over the last 50 years, that's been the trend, but 25 years actually you know, driven this through the roof. So technology has been allowing people to really increase this arbitrage. So uh, the question we, we should be asking is, is there a way by which we could have a better allocation of resources, better allocation of equality of opportunities, uh, whether it's in education, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in resources? I mean, that is probably something we need to understand because if that is not there, what we will effectively end up having is this very, very unequal distribution of resources. 
and very few individuals around the world actually having the ability to influence decision making. And we literally are in the precipice of a situation where we might have a plut uh, plutocracy rather than a true democracy. In many ways, you could probably look at the UK uh, min I mean, set of ministers, like current set of ministers, look at the number of, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I would describe as millionaires from a particular club uh, who have very, very significant positions. And the, the, the funny thing, and this is the thing that I would say, the irony, so Jacob Rees uh, actually has a hedge fund. And a, in a typical situation, if you were in a consulting company and if you were to do this, they would kick you out. They say to you, okay, if you're going to have information from your client that you can actually use to make more money, or you are in a situation that you can actually make a decision and by doing so, your company would make money, you should not be there. And it is so funny that we have a whole bunch of people. This is not just here, right? And there is also this, uh, you know, senator in the U.S. who has actually had to resign from the, uh, you know, I, I think it's the Security Committee in the U.S. Senate because he he had a, uh, you know, a brief, a security brief uh, just before COVID, and he sold his shares, right? So this is this is the this is a problem. Like, what we are having is a challenge where we have a bunch of people who have accumulated a lot of resources. They use these resources to control, take control. This is what the thesis I was describing before, what has actually happened in 2016. So there are different entities, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica was actually invested by somebody who had a hedge fund, right? And, uh, uh, you know, his family members are there on, on the boat. And this is all public information. So, you know, they all had upside in certain movements. So if you run a hedge fund, uh, if you could actually influence something going in a particular direction, you can hedge. You can go long or short. I mean, in this instance, but the simplest description is like, if you knew you're going to have Brexit, and if you could improve your odds of actually having Brexit, and if you knew with a reasonable amount of certainty that you can have a, a devaluation of pound by like 30%, you know, that's a good market opportunity. You, you are incentivized to actually make sure that event is supposed to happen. And, and, and you have nothing to lose in that sense. You, you are an external actor, right? And I'm not even talking about geopolitics and other nation states being interested in this outcome. I'm just describing economic incentives of people in the so-called open Western economy, a market economy, manipulating and possibly, you know, being involved in how things could be moved. So, you know, you could be a conspiracy theorist and you could say, you know what, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica is a good example of a bunch of actors who would have had an upside in actually having certain things happen in the world. Uh, that's one possible view. Another view is like it was something that was waiting to happen. It just happens that all these people stood up along the line and, you know, they all collaborated. Who knows? I mean, if you are somebody who's interested in Bayesian mathematics and Bayesian statistics, you would look at the priors and you go, you know what? Cambridge Analytica has been involved in so many elections in so many places around the world. And the people who are all involved were of a particular kind. And this thesis implies this is a very likely scenario and, you know, hence you should draw your own conclusion. And, you know, this is the thing, like, you know, uh, people seem to actually not have memory of things that have gone in the past. And generally speaking, the past, uh, in many ways, actually, uh, it gives you like uh, better insights to what's coming. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, 
It's going to give you all the information that's required to predict the future, but it's a very informative uh, thing that actually gives you, uh, you know, good framework of what's going to come. So, uh, you know, th th that's my take on the whole thing. So, so on that level, and, and thinking right now in terms of AI, and you're part of uh, uh, multiple international boards in terms of AI and ethics and things like that. So, as we start having, so technology tends to be absolute because you need to look at data, and like you said, in terms of uh, even in terms of mathematics, it's about the sum of parts and the sum of relationships. So, when you start programming AI and you link all this data, because at the moment, so that's one thing is us as humans that have like systems based on evolutionary fragments and evolutionary um, probability, let's put it that way. But when you go to, to programming machines and as well programming our next evolution, definitely is going to be AI and machines and all these different areas. So, how do you see, especially being part of a lot of ethical boards, how do you see AI? not creating an absolute um, monster, <laughs> let's put it that way, because if we program AI to become a monster, it will become a monster. And of course, uh, and there's a lot of things in terms of open AI, you mentioned singularity and singularity net is very positive on that level. How do you see that, especially on the ethics of AI and, and, the, and, and as well in terms of AI in general? So, uh, I mean, uh, just to be uh, a bit more, uh, prescriptive. I mean, the challenges of AI are still open, right? The, the, the question of biases are still open. So, you know, if you were to think about the current context of COVID, you can actually see what's happening. In, in the UK, if you are uh, either Asian or Black, uh, your risks are much higher. But at the same time, if you were to look at, uh, you know, uh, a prediction algorithm and you were running a simulation, going back to simulation, right? The simulation has no, uh, no way to actually recognize you at being, uh, you know, uh, a Caucasian or a BAM, right? BAM, BAM, how will you pronounce it, right? So the outcome here is like, we need to have a couple of things in place to get a better sense of things. First is explainability. How can you actually explain to somebody that you know, whatever that's being done inside in this black box is kind of, or oh, that's being fair. And the second part uh, is the ability to verify, okay, did it actually do what it did, what it's supposed to do, right? And these are like the minimal things that we would probably need to go on a very long journey before we can get to a stage where we can actually have, uh, you know, AI frameworks that we could completely and you know, fully trust because the more and more we trust, like the way I say is like, if you think about the two schools uh, of, probably there are multiple schools of simulation. One of the schools of simulation is agent-based modeling, right? That's literally, uh, you know, AI working, you know, in a slightly different way to actually provide whatever you want. But what I'm kind of saying is like, we have uh, decision-making tools that are there that we rely heavily on. And right now that's what is happening. And we get to a point where there's a transitioning between decision-making uh, tools that allow you to make decisions to tools that actually make decisions. So this transition is where we should be starting to worry. So if we have AI algorithms and we literally have the situation where we have algorithms deciding on who, uh, who gets what and how, and we don't have the ability to A, verify, B, have explainability and probably other characteristics and check for biases, right? 
So this really becomes really, really, really a big challenge. So in our progress to a singularity, this could be like a, a significant challenge for us. And we could actually have all the problems that we currently having, the question of resource allocation we touched upon previously. And then we also talked about like this real challenges between our developed world and underdeveloped world or the first world and the third world. So all of that become really, really, uh, how could I say, well, um, it'll come out like really, really uh, in a differentiable sense. So you know, it wouldn't require a lot of analysis to see the difference that's in the first world and the third world, how different things are. And in, in a world where AI could take over, I, I would assume this, uh, the, the biases that's creeped in because most of the things are being developed in the first world and they get developed, you know, deployed in the third world. Uh, you know, uh, the norms of the first world will be deployed on the third world and it could be a pretty interesting scenario, you know. The norms that we assume to be true will be completely, you know, things that cooked up by, uh, if, if you are being a cynic, would say, uh, you know, white men in air-conditioned rooms, uh, you know, thinking about places where there's no water and it's like 40s or 50 degrees centigrade and, you know, very few resources to use. So it's a, it's just a two different worlds. So we have a challenge. So we, 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 I don't think we are in any way, shape or form to answer any of them or we have uh, clear answers to it. There are, there are lots of initiatives that are happening. People are working on it, but I, I am not 100% sure we have answers. Well, it's, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's one of the things that makes me <laughs> not sleep some nights, but I think, I think one coming back to right now, more on the technology side and taking out. So, one thing I would like to have from a technical perspective, and I think it's important to answer this to our audience that is increasing, but as well to anyone in the world that wants to know. So I would like to ask you from a, a technologist perspective, if you could define the bridges between especially blockchain technology and artificial intelligence. I think it's really important to put it in a, in a good way. If you could come up with a couple of ways how you see the two things working together, both technology and the operations wise. Could you repeat the uh, question? So the, the question me? is, is uh, if you could, um, I think now coming back purely from a technology perspective, if sure. you could uh, look at uh, or look at giving some of your thoughts in terms of the relationship between blockchain technology and artificial intelligence, especially in the areas sure. of uh, smart contracts and the sure. relationship with machine learning and now you sure, see the sure. two things evolving because uh, of course oh, yeah, blockchain I mean, has a lot of different areas yeah. it can go. Oh, absolutely. So if you were to think about, uh, uh, you know, a governance framework that actually allows AI to be governed in a fair and open manner, I think at this moment in time, uh, there is no better technology than blockchain. I know this is a bold claim, but I can't see of anything else that's actually there that is able to provide the same levels of, uh, you know, verification and, uh, uh, you know, uh, other uh, tools for people in AI to use. So just to give you an idea, so, uh, you know, uh, when I say blockchain, I assume, you know, you bring in the things that I described previously, uh, we would actually have the tools from the uh, secure multi-party compute uh, available to us. We will have, uh, you know, tools from the, you know, fully homomorphic encryption tool set available to us. You would also have the tools from uh, zero knowledge, uh, you know, uh, protocols available to us. When these kind of tools are available through blockchain to AI, 
it, we should be able to provide a framework where the governance, so the challenges that are described, so providing explainability, providing proof that's actually doing what it's supposed to do, providing governance mechanisms for one, uh, you know, one algorithm to be replaced by another algorithm. All of this could actually be done in a manner uh, that, that's transparent, uh, but still having very high levels of security and uh, will, you know, to a degree allowing the kind of representation that we actually want. What I mean by that is whether we want to represent uh, a true democracy or you want to implement some sort of uh, quadratic voting, all of that is possible from a blockchain onto an AI ecosystem. So that, you know, you can actually have much better governance and uh, we are, uh, explainability and uh, other characteristics. And also there is this question about garbage in, garbage out, which is like, if you have data coming in and you already highlighted this, like how, uh, you know, blockchain could actually give you provenance to data sets. So if you have a provenance to data set, uh, AI could produce far more valuable outcomes. So, you know, it, it, it's valuable for AI in multiple ways. A, in providing that a particular algorithm is actually trying to do what it's supposed to do, uh, you know, you can explain how it does what it does. The data is getting uh, the kind of, it has the kind of provenance that it's supposed to have. And, you know, in instances where there, there need to be agents and they need to be incentivized for doing various things, you can use blockchain to actually use that that as well. So, um, so coming back right now again to singularity and, and uh, I, sure. I want to particularly, because it touched singularity, but it touched ethics as well. So we, you touched, a bit before in the AI and singularity, and as well some of the, the trends going on. So there's, there's people saying that will be a date, but more than anything is going to be more uh, an evolutionary part of mankind. Yeah. So yeah. if you look at AI as the next evolution of mankind, which it's already happening, um, yeah. how do you see that part of singularity and how do you define it? And as well working with Singularity University, you have a lot of uh, insights from different areas and different global experts. But as well, your vision on singularity and especially the stages of AI and the next 10 years, 20, how you see things evolving? I, mean, I, I would put my hand up and say, I don't know when uh, singularity would happen. Uh, it is likely that singularity might happen and we will only uh, you know, detect it in hindsight. Uh, That's a very likely possibility. Uh, but this is how mostly innovation normally happens. It's like the case of uh, you know, uh, antibiotic being discovered by Alexander Fleming, right? It's, you know, you find things out by accident. So I suspect that is how probably, you know, the singularity might happen and we only find it in hindsight. Uh, but, uh, you know, how fast would it happen? Again, uh, you know, if you were to look at the set of all experts in this space and they're being asked this question multiple times and most of them would give a timeline of like, uh, 15 to 25 years and uh, this has been going on since like I think 1960s so uh, you know he, this is generally the thing about humans humans are pretty good at predicting things that are shorter but when it comes long term it's pretty bad we are pretty bad at uh, predicting uh, long-term events so I would put my hand up and say like you know I am not uh, uh, you know that well informed to actually say you know this would happen at that point in time as I described previously, there are some bets that people have put in. By 2030, we could have singularity. I don't have that level of confidence that Ray has on that event being happening, but it is very possible that 2050 it might happen, like in the next, you know, 
you know, 25, 30 years in time, it's, uh, you know, it is very likely that would happen. And, uh, you know, what would be the impact of that on humanity? I honestly don't know. But, you know, it, it will be a real paradigm shift. But, uh, you know, when it happens, and as I was describing, given that it would happen in an une unequal distribution, and, you know, the interaction between singularity and humanity would be an interesting space to watch. And there are some uh, situations where this could be uh, not so effective, you know, this would be not so good for the humanity. So generally the way I would describe it is like when Columbus landed in America, there was this, uh, you know, civilization that had guns and civilization that had diseases that turned up at a civilization that didn't have either, okay? So this is a, these are diseases of the West in the sense like chickenpox yeah. and li 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 literally. So you could actually think of the same that's going to happen. So they come down and they look at I mean, this is being documented systematically. If you read Makadima or the Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington, uh, you see the same thing happening every time there was a clash between a civilization that's superior to a civilization that. Uh, has that less of technology, uh, generally speaking, the civilization with less of technology will be wiped out. So you can look at Zulus, uh, Zu, you know, even though Zulus were very brave warriors uh, when the, you know, the British actually invaded the place, you know, how a Gatling gun is, uh, you know, in no way matched by a spear. So, you know, this is effectively what's going to happen. And literally what we need to understand is like industrialization literally resultant in weaponization of industrial tools that uh, allowed, you know, industrialized manslaughter. So who knows, AI could have a similar effect. It could actually result in, how could I say, uh, a singularity that has a ways to control humanity or take away humanity or, you know, I don't know, like, uh, you know, it will be a pretty interesting, uh, you know, next 20, 30 years. And hopefully if you're still around at the end of it, we can actually evaluate what really happened. Yeah, that's for sure. No, no, that's fantastic. So, so uh, uh, coming back to that, so I, I, we are passing, we passed already one hour, so I will just go wow. through two more questions. But it's been a, okay. it's a lot of things actually taking notes and there's a lot of fantastic quotes and fantastic things here. So I want to touch two areas in terms of the, the things we're discussing right now. So didn't touch much about what you're doing at the moment. I touched that in the beginning, but if you could tell us your main um, work. I think it's important for our audience <laughs> to know more about oh, you sure, sure. your fantastic ideas. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I, what has actually happened is like, uh, since COVID actually appeared, uh, uh, given I have a degree in medicine, I've worked on a bit on, uh, you know, bioinformatics and transnational bioinformatics. And I understand the thing that I described as agent-based modeling, because that was actually used uh, in the past three or four years to do the thing what we call in the uh, industry of stock and engineering. So I had all the tools in my disposal. And in addition to this, uh, in some parts of the world where I went to med school, I had access to the people who were decision makers. So this resulted in me trying to uh, get involved and help uh, decision-making process. So it's essentially one of the things that took up a, a good chunk of time. And there were other people and other parts of the world who were running hackathons. So again, as somebody who understands technology, security, privacy, and the challenges of privacy when gathering data, and as somebody who has been very, very vocal about uh, you know, privacy-preserving machine learning, uh, all of this came to the fray. So literally what had hap actually happened is like, all the things I've, I've been interested in, uh, you know, in a weird sense that happening, 
come into the forefront and uh, I ended up actually splitting my time across a whole bunch of things. So I've uh, tried helping various people working on privacy preserving contact tracing. I have some very uh, you know, uh, critical views about what has been happening. Effectively, what I would say is uh, when somebody says to you that uh, contact tracing has been successful, you should probably ask them how many people in the world, in, uh, in this part of the world where they actually have implemented contact tracing actually have the application installed and actually have it working. And you'll be surprised to hear the answer, which is low double digits, right? And this is funny. So you might then ask the question, who has the upside of actually gathering this data? And the cynical me says, hmm, these are the, you know, the people who actually gain from having uh, the, the low, I, I would say the low hanging fruits of economic gains of big data. Uh, who made a value by just taking people's data, which would be the Googles of the world, the Twitters of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Apples of the world, right? Uh, and much less of a value for the average citizen on the street. So that's one of the things that have been of interest, uh, both from a policy level and uh, from a technological level. Uh, the last three, four months, I've been involved in that. And from a protocol perspective, uh, I'm still working with a couple of my friends uh, there's uh, one of my friend Benjamin and another of my friend Bishwa. We've been working on a protocol called Polygon. It, it, it's just uh, an ongoing, uh, how could I say, conversa conversation and thought process and bunch of code being written. And we are going through multiple iterations. And then I also do a small amount of teaching in a couple of universities. So I, I have this set of research positions at SRH. So I teach a course there. Then I do have an adjunct faculty position at Harvard Space, so I teach a course there. And then, you know, I, I, as a citizen who wants to add positivity to the world, I decided, you know what, I should teach. Uh, uh, given people are lo in lockdown and they have a bit more bandwidth, I, teach, I should try to teach people token engineering. Because if, uh, you know, blockchain and smart contracts and tokens are become, going to be the new, new norms for the new democracy, Understanding how that new democracy works is very important for everybody who's going to participate in it. So I am running a course uh, online. So you know anybody who's interested who could contact me. It's completely free. A friend of mine has volunteered to do half the lectures. I probably have like a couple of uh, guest lectures, just giving everybody an understanding of how you know how, how the token ecosystem works, and then you know taking them the journey so at least they understand what is really happening rather than being really blindsided by a bunch of experts, so-called experts, telling them a lot of nonsense. Now that's fantastic. And we'll put the links in the interview and uh, on the different channels where we're publishing sure. the interview. So it's really fantastic. Sure. And especially your education and ideas are amazing. So um, probably the last question uh, as we, we pass um, along the one hour benchmark so but I think it's a great <laughs> it's a great thing so how do you see especially COVID-19 um, you touch COVID-19 but we didn't go that do you see COVID-19 is actually rethinking and, and actually melting down the global economy as we know it because we're talking about probably the biggest revolution in the last 100 years financial yeah. quantitative easing is becoming crazy and of course, yep. this will create a lot of new issues besides, of course, the health ones. How do you see that from a, both a technology, but as well as a, a social impact driven person and as well a technologist? So uh, that's a very, very interesting question. It, it definitely, I mean, I, most people have already said this already, but just like 
the world we knew before is not going to be the world we see after. I mean, it is very likely that's going to be the case. So in general, uh, the world actually had a supply chain that was distributed globally and uh, literally there was a delayed action. So if something happened in one part of the world, uh, you know, given the globalization, uh, you know, every other part of the world will get impacted. So uh, what COVID has actually shown us is this real vulnerable underbelly of the global economic system. So not just the fact that, uh, you know, you have uh, services that being sold from uh, Ukraine being consumed in the UK or software services from India being consumed in uh, US, but uh, also the fact that we have a manufacturing pipeline that's actually uh, mostly concentrated in China and uh, that part of Asia that actually drives the whole of the global economy. And you know, a disruption in the supply chain that will really result in how the markets will move. So there is also the challenge that uh, we have this, uh, how could I say, markets that really depend on certain movements and, uh, you know, and certain moments where they really want to take, uh, how could I say, the opportunity. So essentially what I mean to say is like the, 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 there's the underbelly of the market, market economy that, we, that we've have actually seen very clearly emerging. Uh, what I mean to say by that is like, uh, you know, if, if you are a trader, you don't care whether somebody dies by starvation. Uh, the, the ethics of uh, global humanity is not tied into the global markets. And this is a real challenge. And this when combined with this uh, very, very bizarre characteristics of the global pharmaceutical sector, again, is a market-driven decision-making process. So, uh, you know, if, and let me give an example to just drive home what it really means. Imagine there's a vaccine. Uh, imagine there's a vaccine that actually could save hundreds of thousands of millions of lives in uh, Africa uh, and uh, in, you know, third world countries. And the cost of the vaccine, that's affordable cost of the vaccine is like very low. And if you are a pharmaceutical firm, you would actually decide whether you want to release it or not. At the end of the day, what's actually being measured is like how, uh, you know, the current economic system really values humanity. How do they value one human life in the developed world versus how they value a human life in some other parts of the world? And this is being driven really hard. And also the question of like COVID really has, you know, put the focus on people and, uh, you know, the age distribution, the demographic of uh, countries, right? The, the the thing that people would have noticed already is like any country that actually has a population about 70 in the average population. It's like for the life expectancy is in the 80s. You have a population that is in the 70s and there's a, you know, good proportion of them at the 70s. And that is the population that has the largest amount of fatalities. And again, if you look at COVID, COVID is a supply chain phenomenon. So imagine you had a patient in uh, ICU or intensive care, right? So literally, if you're thinking of eight-hour shifts, you have three people who's watching over this person 24 hours, right? And now you need to understand that in addition to those three people, you need to have at least two people outside to support those three people. And in addition to the, uh, the people who are supporting them, you have doctors and other people who are distributed uh, you know, at a low level. What I mean by that is what, you know, a doctor could probably say 10 or 20 patients, right? 
So if you look at all that, effectively what COVID has really shown us is how resource allocation happens. So generally speaking, humanity have, has had the strange urge to undervalue the risk of events that would happen with a low probability in distant future versus things that can happen with a higher certainty in near future. So, and this is also the problem that resource allocation when things happen. So if you have a variation in, uh, how could I say, hospital admissions in between summer and winter and variation between years, we don't really take into consideration what might happen in two years or three years. And this is a real problem. And this again goes back to the challenge I was describing previously. This is a failure of democracy. Democracy really, really is a failed governance mechanism. Uh, why is it so? It's just because I said, if your rule is for four years and you're not going to get any brownie points for the things you did, that will have a long-term implication. You can only do so if you really decide you and your party is going to lose because you know the short-term trade-offs essentially is not going to be not very good. It's, there are very, very few situations where both the long-term and short-term are really aligned. A lot of the hard choices, the choices is where you make a short-term loss for a long-term gain. And humans in general are very bad at delayed gratification. And this is a human decision bias. And we as humanity have been faced with this problem on a continuous basis. And uh, if you were to look at Yuval Hariri and other people, you could re recognize that belief system was one of the things that humanity came up with that allowed us to actually align these incentives. So the fear of God, uh, in, uh, you know, if you were to think of communist says the fear of the central police, right? Whatever that is, that actually allowed you to actually shift from the short-term thinking to a long-term thinking. So unfortunately, given all those things have failed or are been failing, or we have this huge challenge which has been brought to a forefront by COVID. Literally, the failure of governance, failure of democracy, unequal distribution of resources, uh, failure of actually good, uh, what it was, uh, robust, uh, you know, supply chains that allow a society to survive. These are the challenges that we have to, you know, take the bull by the horn and kind of decide. Okay? And also the fact that our markets the right way to actually distribute some of the very finite distributed resources in the society. This could be healthcare, this could be food, this could be water, this could be air, I don't know what it is, but we really need to rethink. Because as I said, a trader, even though his action might result in hundreds of thousands of people dying, is not evaluated by his ethical decision-making process, by is evaluated by the money he brings to the bank or the investment institution. And the investment institutions are always, always measured by the money they bring, not the ethics they have. We have a real misaligned incentive. We have no measures of ethics in the society. Given that we have no measures of ethics, and we actually have this real challenge of short-term versus long-term decision-making challenges, I, I think uh, we have a very interesting open problem in front of us. Well, I think you put it uh, so, so fantastic. And I, and I really, I'm 200% with you on 1000 because I think it's a, it's a real big problem. And as well, someone that has been studying finance and trading, you're right. I think the incentives are all wrong. And, but the problem as well, that what you touch and, and probably is the last uh, question, but I think last interaction as well, is that the challenge is not just the financial and trading um, 
mechanisms that are not prepared to look at the profitable, the ethical, and the social impact or the social investment as well that you can look at it. But as well, we have a, a completely failure of governance and failure of leadership because our, our leadership systems which you touch are planned for four years. They're not planned based on meritocratic system. They're planned based on people that are more related. And as well, but that is where I think, uh, and coming up with a bit of hope <laughs> to that, is that don't you think it's where I think people like us and, and as well, we can actually build peer-to-peer -peer decentralized platforms that actually can actually create a governance because we have the tools. Uh, the irony is that we have more tools than ever. And I would like to provoke on that level being positive because we know the problems and, and you touch it in a very powerful way. And I think it's very important what you touch about that the trader is actually going to be rewarded for making money even if he kills probably 1,000 or 1 million people. Because in the end of the day, they, they, it's true. If, if you're looking at yeah. someone in forex markets that suddenly will just take down an entire country, I'm sorry, yeah. that is probably taking down, when that happens, probably will kill yeah. at least 5,000 5, yeah. people or even hundreds yeah, of people. Easily. Yeah. So, so, you know, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, we do have a lot of tools at our disposal. We do have a, a global coordination problem as well, and we can pretty much solve it. And in a way, you can actually see some of the real initiatives coming not from the governments. So I can give you examples of people who have actually done lots of things. So one of my friends uh, who actually is from the machine learning space, he, he was one of the founders of Miri. He has an initiative to actually distribute uh, in a mass in prisons in America. And I have other friends of mine who've actually, you know, spending their own money. So I probably would quote another friend of mine, Daniel Fong, which is in public domain. She spent some of her own money to actually help uh, you know, research and development against, uh, you know, viruses, right? So there are lots of people who are actually doing this, but effectively we don't have uh, a coordination mechanism. So if we were actually being able to use coordination mechanisms, so we, you know, we could look at Zoom and, and right now we are using, using Zoom to actually do this interview. And Zoom actually is a very good coordination tool. You can actually get uh, you know, you know, hundreds of people together from around the globe to think together, come to decisions. So we recognize and we put in put in frameworks, and we start up thinking about how to coordinate in a very, very, very interesting way. And this is one of the very interesting upsides of the whole thing happening. So previously, one of the things you might have noticed is we were all physically bound. All the conferences implied that you have to be physically there. What COVID allowed us to think and think differently is the fact that you no longer need to be there physically, but you could still have the impact even if you are not in the room. So this could be taken to the next level. We could actually have a democracy that represents people where, you know, in a very decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer and location-independent manner, and we could actually bring forth, because a lot of us have access to resources, and given the way that there are no rules in the cyberspace about you know, the regions where we allocate it, and there's no differentiation between the first world or the third world. We might be able to you know, come up with solutions and implement them uh, you know, and turn on its head what COVID has actually taught us. Like COVID actually, in a way, has been a good thing, waking us up to the challenges that humanity faces and the possible set of uh, you know, answers that we might have and that we can actually, you know, look beyond the physical world 
look beyond the uh, you know the boundaries of states and cities and countries and think globally and work globally to actually looking for solutions and answers for the whole humanity yeah and i think that's a great way to wrap up this and i i I'm, i could not be more agreeing with you and i think that's why we created as well citiesabc.com that is precisely a, a a bridge for cities to start collaborating with each other and as well education and and these initiatives and this kind of thought leadership that you're doing as well uh it's critical so so Anish, just to finish, uh, could you tell us where people can find you? Have your own podcasts, different things. I think it's always good to shout and uh, promote. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, like, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, running a podcast, and uh, what what is uh, it's called Pretopia. Uh, we actually interviewed a bunch of people. We have a bunch of podcasts uh, that's been published. What literally had happened is like me and my, uh, you know, partner in crime, uh, other person called Nima, he had to take a full-time job that, uh, so overall the total time that's available for us has decreased significantly. But still, uh, we, we tried to make a dent on uh, the amount of bullshit that was there in the space. So we wanted to talk to people who we thought were thought leaders who could actually tell us the truth about the reality of the situation versus marketing uh, so uh, I, I still do that uh, and um, you know I, I have a web page is anishmohammed.me I mean that, that, that doesn't have been updated for a very long time generally speaking if there's a topic and you want to get hold of what I've done in this space it will be Google would be the easiest place to find <laughs> my name and the topic and you'll find it because I have been uh, very very lazy and um, you know, I, I never thought of myself as a person who does the marketing for myself. Uh, and uh, I don't think there is much value in doing that. Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, uh, I've stuck to what I've been doing. It's just doing the things that need to be done rather than shouting out, you know, what you have done. So that's how I think the value is created. No, very good. Well, it's fantastic. And of course, definitely we're going to be highlighting your profile, the links and the putting all of that both in all the multiple channels where you're going to be distributing, both uh, on YouTube, but as well on citiesabc.com and Intelligent sure. Review and different platforms. Sure. So, Anish, I want to thank you so much. It's been a fantastic, uh, almost, yeah, actually almost two hours, but I think it's wow. worth. And uh, I want to appreciate uh, this and uh, wishing you all the best and talk soon. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and thank you for interviewing me.